questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. It is now 103 years since drugs were first banned in the United States. On the eve of this centenary, journalist Johan Harry set off on an epic three-year, 30,000-mile journey into the war on drugs. What he found is that more and more people all over the world have begun to recognize three startling truths. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. And the drug war has very different motives to the ones we have seen on our TV screens for so long. Greetings. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And tonight's special guest is Johan Hari, a columnist for The Independent in London for nine years, twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International. He has written for The New York Times, The LA Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Slate, The New Republic, and The Nation. He has also been awarded the Comet Award for Cultural Commentator of the Year by Editorial Intelligence and has been named Journalist of the Year by Stonewall. He is the author of Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. His website is chasingthescream.com, and Johan Harry joins us directly from London, England. Hello, Johan, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, Mel. Really good to be with you. Thanks very much. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. Doing very well. And I have to tell you, your book is a page-turner. I spent the last three days, and I could not stop. It's an excellent book for anyone, anyone. Folks, if you really want to learn about the war on drugs or the war for drugs, read the book. But, Johan, when and why did you start, quote-unquote, chasing the scream? And explain what you mean by chasing the scream. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate what you said about the book. Um, For me, there was quite a personal reason why I wrote this book. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I I didn't understand why then because I was so small. But as I got older, I realized we had a drug addiction in my family and several members of my family. And, you know, when I started to write the book, it was, God, nearly six years ago now. To be honest, this is going to sound really arrogant. I thought, oh, this is going to be an easy book to write. <laughs> I thought, I've lived through this with my family. I'd written as a journalist quite a lot about the drug war. I thought, oh, this is going to be a, it's going to be a cinch. And I sat down and I wrote out a list of questions to myself that I wanted to answer, which were, I knew we were coming up to a hundred years since drugs were first banned. So one of them is, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts a hundred years ago? Why do we continue when it doesn't seem to be working very well? What are the alternatives like in practice? How do they actually work? And and what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And as I started to write, I realized I didn't know the answer to a single one of those questions. So I realized I had to go on a journey, and I don't think I realized how big a journey it would be at the start. But what I wanted to do was both to look at the best evidence, but also to sit with people all over the world whose lives have been changed by the drug war and by the alternatives to the drug war. So. I ended up going over 30,000 miles. I think I've been to 17 different countries now. And I ended up getting to know a crazy mixture of people from a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel um, to, you know, a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. It turns out they do. Uh, 
to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs with incredible results. And I think the main thing I learned is almost everything that I thought I knew about this subject was wrong. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. The war on drugs is not what we think it is. And the alternatives to the war on drugs are not what we think they are. So it was quite bewildering in a way to realize that so much of what we've taken for granted for so long is wrong. And to meet so many people whose people whose whose lives have been reshaped by our errors and by if we start getting it right, how many people's lives can be reshaped. So the 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 title Chasing the Screen, which you asked about, comes from this guy who I knew very little about when I started doing doing the research. He's a man called Harry Anslinger, and he's probably the most influential person who no one's ever heard of. He's the man who invented the modern war on drugs long before Nixon, long before Reagan in the 1920s and 1930s. He's the man who first uses the phrase war on drugs. He's the government bureaucrat who helps to create the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and then remains in charge of it right up until the Kennedy administration from the 20s to the Kennedy administration. And he is a kind of crazy story because he takes over the Department of Prohibition, alcohol prohibition, just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So he inherits this big government bureaucracy that's just been humiliated. They've lost the war on alcohol. They, they're, they're completely corrupt. It's just a broken, finished government agency. And he wants to keep it going. And he builds the modern war on drugs. He wants to turn his department into the repository of the war on drugs. And he effectively invents the war on drugs as its mission. And, you know, he was a sincere believer and he built this, this department, this mission around two really intense hatreds that he had. One was an intense hatred of African Americans and Latinos. This is a guy who was regarded as incredibly racist in the 1920s, which is a sign of how extraordinarily racist he was. He used the N-word so often in official police memos that his own senator said he should have to stand down. And the other group he really hated was people with addiction problems. When he was a kid, he, he grew up in um, a place called Altoona in, in rural Pennsylvania. And he grew up on a farm, a remote farm in, in these wheat fields. And he never forgot this experience he had as a boy. On the next farm down, or a couple of farms down, there was a, a farmer's wife who had a, an addiction to opiates. And one day, I think he was 10 or 11, he went to the farmer's house and upstairs the farmer's wife was screaming and Harry Anslinger didn't understand why and the farmer said you know go to the local pharmacy get this prescription so Harry Anslinger takes the horse and cart and he goes there as quickly as he can and he gets the prescription and he comes back and the woman is given what would have been very powerful opiates and she stops screaming and Anslinger took from this experience, traumatized by this experience, and he took from this experience that, you know, that, that drugs cause this screaming. And he believes that by launching this war, he's going to stop these screams. And uh, to me, the tragedy of Harry Anslinger is that in reality, he creates many, many more screams in turn. And obviously, there are more Harry Anslinger. He, of course, he's deceased by now. But more people took over his, his position, and we'll talk about that later. And also, you mentioned there's a country that has decriminalized drugs from from cannabis to, to crack cocaine. But we'll leave that for the end, because this is where things get better. <laughs> you say if there was a Mount Rushmore for the war on drugs, there would be three people displayed there. Who might they be? So Harry Anslinger, who we've been talking about, 
Billy Holiday and a man called Arnold Rothstein. So I open Chasing the Screen with a story that might seem, I think some people it sounds a bit, seems like a bit of a strange place to begin a book about the drug war. So in 1939, Billy Holiday walked on stage in Midtown Manhattan in a hotel where she wasn't even allowed to walk through the, the front door because she was an African-American. They made her go through the service elevator. She stood in front of a white audience and she sang a song that I'm sure lots of your listeners will know. It's a song called Strange Fruit. It's a sure. Antichian song. It, it imagines, it describes the, the bodies of African-American men hanging from trees in the South and it after being lynched and it describes this as the, the strange fruit of the South. Billy Holiday's goddaughter, Lorraine Feather, said to me, look, you've got to understand how radical this was for an African-American woman to stand in front of a white audience and sing that song at that point in history. And that night, Billy Holiday received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from Harry Anslinger's men. And the, it basically said, stop singing this song. And that might seem like a, a weird place to begin this story because you think, well, What's that got to do with the drug war, right? I think it reveals so much about the drug war. Billie Holiday was everything Harry Anslinger hated, rolled into one person. I really saw this when I went to his his archives. She's obviously an African-American woman resisting white supremacy. She's also had a very bad drug addiction. When she was 10, she was raped. And the rapist was sent to prison for two years and she was sent to a reformatory for longer. And she ran away and she ended up, um, in a, in a, I don't like using the word working. It's not the right word in this context. She ended up being in a, in a brothel where she was raped for money by many men from when she was 14. And really Billie Holiday was trying to stun her pain and her grief. And she started with alcohol and she, she used, ended up using a lot of heroin. And so Anslinger's men really hated her and Anslinger really hated her. And when she was told to stop singing this song, she effectively said, screw you, I'm an American citizen. I'll sing whatever damn song I want. And that's when Anslinger really resolved to destroy her. So first of all, he, he, he hated employing non-white people, but you couldn't really send a, a white guy in, into Harlem to stalk Billy Holiday. It'd be right. kind of obvious. So, he employs this this guy called Jimmy Fletcher, who was what they called a bag man. His job was to follow Billy Holiday around. And he spends a year and a half following her in all these different places. And Billy Holiday was so amazing that Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her. And his whole life, he, he felt really guilty about what he did. He, he busts her. She's put on trial. The The trial was called the United States versus Billy Holiday. And she said, yeah, that's how it felt. And she's, she's sent to prison. She doesn't sing a word in prison. She's there for nearly two years. She doesn't sing a word in prison. And then when she gets out, the cruelest thing happened. You needed a, um, a license to perform anywhere where alcohol was served. It was called a cabaret performance license. And Anslinger makes sure that Billie Holiday doesn't get it. Her, her friend Yolanda Bavan, who's another great jazz singer, said to me, can you imagine anything crueler than to take away singing from Billie Holiday? This is, by the way, what we do to addicts all over the United States today. We we put obstacles between them and reconnecting. And so she relapses. She uses a lot of heroin 
And when she's in um, alcohol, huge amounts of alcohol. And when she's in her early 40s, one day in Midtown, in, in Midtown Manhattan, not far from where she, first some strange fruit, she collapses. And she's taken to hospital. The first hospital wouldn't even take her in because she was an addict. The second hospital lets her in, but she says to one of her friends, Maylie Dufty, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them. They're going to kill me in there. She's convinced that Harry Ansel and his men are going to come for her. And she was right. She was diagnosed in the hospital with liver cancer. And the Anslinger's men come and they arrest her on her prison bed, on her hospital bed, and they handcuff her to the hospital bed. I interviewed the last surviving person who had been in that room, wonderful man called Eugene Callender, and they don't let her, they throw her friends out, they don't let her friends in to see her, they don't let her have a record player or her candies. And, um, She, she obviously goes into heroin withdrawal because they're not giving her any heroin. And, and Maylie Dufty, her friend, managed to insist that she was given methadone. And she actually started to recover a bit because if you're very weak with liver cancer, you know, that kind of withdrawal is like a bad flu. It can finish you off. And um, she did start to recover. And then Anslinger's men have her cut off from the methadone and then she died the next day or a couple of days later, I think it was. One of her friends told the BBC that it looked like she had been violently wrenched from life. And there were nearly riots at the funeral. People had been protesting outside the hospital with a sign saying, let Lady Day live. And there's a lot of things I take from that. I think it tells us so much about the drug war. It tells us what it was about at the start, how it was about persecuting African-Americans and Latinos, which it remains today. African-Americans and Latinos are no more likely to use drugs than the other group. They make up the overwhelming majority of people who go to prison for it. Um, it, it. It tells us about what it does to people with addiction problems. Sometimes people say, oh, the war on drugs fails when it comes to addiction. The reality is much worse. It makes addiction worse. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to more of that later. Um, and but, but there's also another thing about that, which really helped me, actually, because like anyone who's got people they love who have addiction problems, this is a difficult thing to talk about, but we all have a Harry Anslinger in us, right? I think one of the reasons why the debate about the war on drugs is so charged is because it runs through the hearts of all of us. We all have a Harry Anslinger in our heads. We all have a bit that says, I wish someone would just stop you. I wish someone would force you to stop doing this thing. And one of the things that really helped me was to, to think about the heroism of Billie Holiday. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped singing that song. She would go to places where they didn't, you didn't need a license. She would go to the deepest parts of the deep south. She would sing strange fruit. Sometimes people would throw bottles at her and call her the N word. And she would throw the bottle back and she would sing her damn song and she never let them stop her. And I think, you know, the only story of heroism we ever get to tell about people with addiction problems is when they stop being addicted, when they get to overcome their addiction. And that is a story of heroism and those people absolutely deserve to be celebrated. But you know, Billie Holiday never stopped using heroin. And she was still a hero. The the strength and the courage it took to do what she did to stand up to those people was extraordinary, especially given the pain and the grief and the distress that she was in. So to me, it's a story about both what the drug war does and the resistance to the drug war. And I had this, you know, I had this really interesting conversation with, I mentioned Yolanda Bavan, who was a friend of Billie Holiday's, who was a jazz singer. And, you know, I was talking to her about how 
every day all over the world, people still listen to Billie Holiday and they feel stronger. And every day people are still following Harry Anslinger's script and it's making people weaker. But uh, Yolanda, I asked Yolanda, you know, what would you say to Billie Holiday if you could talk to her now? And she, she had this long pause and she said, she'd been telling me about how Billie Holiday at the end of her life thought she'd be completely forgotten. She thought no one would remember her. And she said, I would say to her, this morning I went into Whole Foods and they were playing your music. Nobody forgot you, baby. That <laughs> <laughs> really stayed with me, that is. You know, you developed the characters, not that that you're creating them, because this is absolutely not fiction. But I love Billie Holiday's music. I love all that that music, the jazz and so on. And reading her story, not only was she fighting this war on, on drugs, she was also fighting at a time when black people were not expected to be like her. And why don't you tell us a little bit of her background? Because I think it was incredible. I didn't know all the specifics. You know, her father was, I think he was 17. And, you know, he died of pneumonia, I believe, because of the, where she lived in that area of the of the United States. I think it was Maryland. It was the, the last bastion of not having, you know, septic systems there. So he had pneumonia. But he couldn't go to the hospital to be taken care of because he was black. So he died. The mother was 19. She couldn't take care of him. Am I, am I going on the right track here? Totally. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story of uh, what, what was done. I think her father actually died in the, in the South. He was a jazz musician himself, but he was traveling and he got sick. I can't remember what it was, but it was something very simple to treat. It might've been an appendicitis, but there were no hospitals that would take African-Americans. So he died. Right. And, and she regarded her father as being, rightly, as being murdered by, by white supremacy, um, entirely rightly. I mean, there were, there was a whole generation of extraordinarily heroic, um, singers and performers, Paul Robeson, people like that. But the, yeah, I mean, one of the most bleakly funny parts of the research for this early part of the book about, which is the first, I guess, I mean, 15, 20% about this early drug war, um, was the Anslinger would send his Anslinger was obsessed with jazz. He thought jazz was like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the least offensive term, like miscegenated, you know, interbreeding. It was everything he thought was like, yeah, exactly. He thought that if people listened to, if he was obsessed with the idea that white women would listen to jazz and want to have sex with African American men. And, um, there's a really funny bit where, he would get his agents to write down um, the lyrics of jazz songs in, in jazz clubs. And then he would announce that this is what people, he, he thought they, that the people who sang them thought they were literally true. And this is what drugs did to you. So there was one song called, I think it's called that ocean man. And there's a lyric that's something like when he gets the notion, he thinks he can walk across the ocean and Anslinger writes in the margins. This is what marijuana does to you. You believe you can walk on the water, you know, uh, and I think it's 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 an interesting story about it was fascinating. I spent plenty of time in the Anslinger archives and it was a really interesting experience because you see the the tracking of the development of this. The and Anslinger himself is this fascinating, dark, weird, mad character. Uh, you know, he himself is very mentally unstable, he actually has several breakdowns. Um Thank you for listening. 
To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.